Before we start today's episode, I've got a number that you can call or text with questions and comments. Hit me up at 720-772-7988 and leave me a message. I'll be sure to get back to you. All right, uh, lift off and the clock has started. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Discovery, go at throttle up. And liftoff, the final liftoff of Atlantis on the shoulders of the space shuttle. America will continue the dream. This is The Space Shot, episode 399. This week in space history for October 28th to November 3rd. I'm John Mulnix. Next episode, I'll be sharing some audio from Chris, who called in to ask about what my five favorite space movies are. I'm going to be including a little bit of sci-fi into this list, obviously, because I'm a bit of a Star Trek nerd. And I'll also have a few space movies in there for good measure. On October 28, 2009, the Ares 1X lifted off Pad 39B for the first and last time. This slender, 327-foot-tall rocket utilized a modified solid rocket booster from the shuttle program as its first stage. The upper stage of this rocket was inert and filled with ballast and instrumentation. NASA called this launch the first flight of a new era. Sadly, that wasn't the case. The Ares 1 and Ares 5 launch vehicles were part of NASA's ill-fated Constellation program that was canceled when President Obama proposed a new NASA budget in the early years of his administration. Originally, Ares 1 was meant to be a human-rated rocket that could carry crew into space in an Orion spacecraft to meet up with either the proposed Altair Lunar Lander or the International Space Station. The Ares 5 was a cargo-capable rocket that was supposed to carry up to 143,000 pounds of payload, including the Altair lander, to the moon. NASA had planned to have the Ares 5 launch on a 21-day human-crewed lunar mission in December of 2019. Instead, we're still years away from a crewed mission to the moon. NASA's SLS rocket will most likely launch for the first time in 2021, the SLS is supposed to be able to deliver between 57,000 pounds and up to 99,000 pounds eventually with the upgraded SLS. The first human missions to the moon utilizing SLS are targeted for 2024, a date that was set by President Trump. I'd love to see a 2024 moon landing happen, but NASA's been trying to get back to the moon since the Constellation program was first announced in 2005. On October 28, 1998, the first American astronaut to orbit Earth flew into space for his second and last time. John Glenn became an American hero when his Friendship 7 capsule flew into space on February 20, 1962. His historic flight wasn't even five hours long, but it secured him a place in the history books and in the hearts of the American public. Glenn was a hero in every sense of the word. He flew combat missions during World War II and the Korean War. After his days as a fighter pilot, Glenn continued to fly, accumulating thousands of hours of flying time. 
He was selected as one of the original Mercury 7 astronauts and flew into space on the first American orbital spaceflight, which was the third of Project Mercury. His time at NASA ended in the mid-1960s when he entered the private sector and began a long-lasting career in politics. He won four consecutive terms as the senator from Ohio. He was a member of the Senate when he flew into space during STS-95. His flight on the shuttle was the third time that a sitting politician had flown into space. STS-95 was a nearly nine-day-long shuttle mission that conducted biomedical research on Senator Glenn. The measurements that were obtained during this mission were compared with the data that was gathered during Glenn's flight on Friendship 7 in 1962. Thirty-six years had elapsed between his first flight and his last. One of the studies on Glenn focused on how astronauts sleep in space. The 90-minute orbit of Earth can interfere with the circadian rhythm of astronauts, which can cause sleeping problems. Sleeping disorders are also common among the elderly back here on Earth, so his flight into space at the age of 77 gave scientists a very unique test subject. I remember my grandpa and grandma talking about this shuttle mission, and I remember seeing the news that Glenn was going to fly into space again. I was 11 when the launch took place, and I watched the news coverage of Glenn, just like everybody else here in the United States, I'm sure. Even though I didn't get to see this launch live, it's one of those positive and unifying experiences that will always be with me, and for everyone that was able to experience it, all over the world. Glenn's last flight transcended generations. Younger people watched as one of the heroes of the space race was launched into orbit one last time. I think that Glenn's second flight lived up to the namesake of his first spacecraft, Friendship 7. His travels into space were in the spirit of friendship, and it's only fitting that during this shuttle flight, he was part of a multinational crew which underscored the bond that had been achieved for countries to take part in spaceflight together. During this mission, Glenn flew into space with astronauts Chaki Mukai, the first female astronaut from Japan, and Pedro Duque, the first Spanish astronaut. Next up, we've got an ungangly flying machine. What do you get when you take a turbofan engine and strap fuel tanks and hydrogen peroxide rockets to an open frame structure? Well, you get the LLRV, or the Lunar Landing Research Vehicle, or as it's also known, the Flying Bedstead. LLRV No. 1 was piloted by famed test pilot Joe Walker for the first time on October 30, 1964. This flight lasted 60 seconds and reached a maximum altitude of 10 feet. Later flights of the training vehicle were more ambitious because the craft had to simulate landing on the lunar surface. If you've listened to the podcast for a while, you may remember that Walker was the first civilian to reach space. Check out episode 66 for more information about his historic X-15 flight. The LLRV was successful enough that NASA placed an order with Bell Aerosystems for three more LLTVs that cost $2.5 million each in the mid-1960s. Once the LLTVs were complete, NASA had a fleet of five vehicles. These lunar landing research vehicles look similar to the Apollo lunar module. The position of the legs and the cockpit are roughly the same. How they operated was even more interesting. I watched a video of a talk that Neil Armstrong gave. 
and he described how the turbofan on the aircraft automatically adjusted to simulate how the vehicle would react in lunar gravity. This lunar simulation mode was challenging. Armstrong said that deceleration in the lunar simulation mode was like trying to stop a downhill putt on a green. As someone who occasionally golfs, a downhill putt on a green is not fun if you give it too much juice. The centrally mounted turbofan on the LLRV and LLTV gave enough power that the astronauts were able to experience one-sixth gravity, which allowed for them to practice approaches and landings for their missions to the moon. One of my favorite anecdotes from Armstrong's talk is when he shares how the manhole covers at test facilities could be blown off by the exhaust from the turbofan on the LLRT. Even though the trainers were dangerous, three of the five had crashed, all of the astronauts felt that they were critical to the success of the lunar landing missions. Now, let's jump to some more recent space history. The Space Shuttle Challenger lifted off on the STS-61 mission on October 30th, 1985. There were eight astronauts on board, and that's a record for the most people to launch into space on the same spacecraft, and it's also a record that could hold for some time until SpaceX is able to get Starship flying. This seven-day mission included a German-sponsored space lab, which housed experiments on capillary fluid physics, biological studies, and more. Three ESA astronauts flew on this mission, Reinhard Furrer, Ernst Messerschmidt, and Wubbo Ockels, the first Dutch astronaut. STS-61 was interesting because teams at Johnson Space Center controlled Challenger, while the science operations were managed at the German Space Operations Center in what was at the time West Germany. The crew met the science objectives for this mission, and sadly this was the last time that the Challenger would fly into space. Next up, let's move to October 31st. Happy Halloween. On October 31st, 2000, a Soyuz capsule lifted off from the Baikonur Cosmodrome. Now, Soyuz launches have been a very common occurrence for about a half century at this point, but back in 2000, this particular Soyuz capsule was carrying the crew of a very special mission, Expedition 1. The launch of Expedition 1 to the International Space Station started something that has never taken place in human history, and that's a continuous human presence in outer space. NASA astronaut William Shepard and cosmonauts Sergei Krikalov and Yuri Gedzenko arrived at the station after a multi-day trip. Early crewed missions to the station had to use a standard flight path, which meant that the crew in the Soyuz would spend multiple days catching up with the ISS. This stands in stark contrast with the faster rendezvous technique that has been used more recently, and it allows crews to reach the station in about six hours, which is faster than the road trip that I take from Loveland, Colorado to Hutchinson, Kansas to volunteer at the Cosmosphere. On the 34th orbit of the Soyuz capsule, the crew had docked with the space station. Once the final docking checks were completed, the crew was able to open the hatch to the station on the 35th orbit. Once they entered the ISS, it officially marked the beginning of a continued human presence in space that's been going on for 19 years. Once the crew was on board the ISS, they dove right into their tasks, which included everything from unpacking a progress resupply vehicle that had arrived a short time after their docking, to setting up laptop networking on the station. 
A few years ago, I read through some of the log entries from Commander William, or Bill Shepard as he's known, and they provide a unique look into how busy life on the station was during those first few months. One of his log entries from November 2000 says that, quote, We take a break about 2130 for some chow and to go through the care packages that we found on progress. The troops are pretty happy that we have all of our loot, and the mail from home is great. Sergey got some excellent kielbasa. We test this right away. Cranked up the laptop and we watched disc one of The Sixth Sense. We call it a night about midnight. The laptops on board the station at this time were modified ThinkPads, and having owned a ThinkPad from the mid-2000s, I can tell you that cranking up the laptop volume to maximum usually didn't elicit a drastic increase in volume, it just made the speakers sound worse. Tinny sounding speakers aside, the crew was living and working in space. When I read through Shepard's logs a few years ago, it got me thinking about a topic that I've talked about a lot since then. Let's detour a little bit from Expedition 1 and focus on something else instead. One of the things that I find extremely interesting about the continued human presence in space is how people here on Earth interact with astronauts and cosmonauts on board the station. I had dial-up internet at home when Expedition 1 was launched, so doing something like watching a live stream of a rocket launch wasn't even on my radar, and now I can do that on my phone anywhere I have a cell signal. Incredible new technologies have opened up innovative ways for the public to engage with NASA and international partners. The same also goes for the crew on the station. They have new ways that they can reach people here on Earth. This has created new ways for astronauts and cosmonauts to share their stories with people all over the planet. Astronauts can document what life is like in space, and they can show us everything from what it's like to eat to describing a repair procedure during a spacewalk. It's going to be exciting to see how astronauts, space agencies, and now private companies will use storytelling as we embark upon future missions back to the moon and later to Mars. Historians are going to debate about what is the most enduring legacy that the International Space Station leaves behind. I'm on record as saying that the human stories and these relationships that have been shared and developed over the lifetime of the station are going to be its most enduring legacy. We are all part of the human story of spaceflight. Next up, we're moving into November, and it's a busy day in space history. Here are four missions, starting with Laika in 1957 and ending with the shuttle Atlantis in 1994. The 37 years that passed between Laika and Atlantis's flight saw humans walk on the moon, and robotic explorers like Voyager 2 reach Neptune and the most distant reaches of our solar system. As much as people want giant leaps for space exploration, there's something to be said for consistent small steps over decades. Think about that as we talk about these missions in the rest of today's episode. On November 3, 1957, Sputnik 2 launched into orbit, and it carried a special passenger, which was another first for the Soviet Union. The passenger on this flight was Laika, a cute little mutt that the Soviets had selected for this mission. It was the first time that an animal had been launched into orbit. Like Sputnik 1, Sputnik 2 didn't carry a wide array of science instruments, which limited the scientific usefulness of this flight. And sadly, the flight didn't end well for Laika. 
The spacecraft wasn't designed to re-enter Earth's atmosphere, so Laika was sent on a doomed mission. Three years later, on November 3, 1960, the United States launched Explorer 8. It was a small satellite compared with Sputnik 2, but Explorer 8 wasn't meant to carry a passenger. Instead, this satellite was packed with scientific instruments, which allowed scientists to gather information for 54 days, which was the life of the battery packs that had been jammed into this 90-pound spacecraft. Explorer 8 studied the ionosphere and micrometeorites, among a few other things. Let's move forward 13 years to the launch of Mariner 10. Mariner 10 launched on November 3, 1973, and it was sent towards Venus, where it performed a flyby of that planet so it could be sent on a trajectory to reach Mercury. Mariner 10's flyby of Venus meant that it was the first spacecraft to visit two planets, which was a significant first for NASA. Experience with gravity assist maneuvers was critical for the upcoming Voyager missions, which were initially named the Mariner-Jupiter-Saturn 1977 mission, which is not as catchy or iconic as Voyager, if you ask me. Mariner 10 returned essential data during its gravity assist at Venus, which showed the first close-up images of that planet. It did experience some computer glitches during the trip to Venus and Mercury, but thankfully those were overcome. Mariner 10 arrived at Mercury for the first time in March of 1974, and the spacecraft encountered the planet two more times, ultimately ending its mission in 1975. Lastly for today, we've got STS-66. The Space Shuttle Atlantis launched on November 3, 1994, on a nearly 11-day-long mission, the crew of six astronauts worked in two shifts to perform around-the-clock experiments on Earth's atmosphere. The ATLAS-3, or Atmospheric Laboratory for Applications and Science-3, catchy name, flew on Atlantis, which studied, you guessed it, Earth's atmosphere. During this mission, Atlantis deployed a science payload that flew alongside the shuttle between 24 and 44 miles out for over a week. During the rendezvous with this payload, Atlantis performed a different type of approach, one that would later be used in the shuttle Mir flights and the shuttle missions to the International Space Station. The mission concluded with the crew landing at Edwards Air Force Base due to some storms in Florida. Even though the space shuttles didn't fly as often as had been hoped or promised, they did provide a relatively frequent way for humans to get into space. If you ask me, small steps working towards longer-term goals is a pretty good legacy to leave behind. That's it for this week. Be sure to subscribe to The Space Shot so you never miss an episode. I'd love it if you could leave a review in Apple Podcasts. They help more people find out about the show. I've also got a call-in number that you can call or text with questions or comments. Just hit me up at 720-772-7988 and leave me a message. I'll be sure to get back to you. You can also connect with me at John Molnix on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. All of these social media links are in the show notes. Until next time, I'm John Molnix, and I'll catch you on the flip side.